Section 18 of the Book of Ser Marco Polo, the Venetian, Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Will Staunton in Toronto, Canada. The Book of Ser Marco Polo, the Venetian, Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East, Volume 2, by Rusticello da Pisa. Translated by Henry Ewell. Book Fourth, Chapters One to Twelve, Chapter One. Concerning Great Turkey. Note: A considerable number of the quasi-historical chapters in this section, which I have followed M. Pothier in making into a fourth book, are the merest verbiage and repetition of narrative formulae without the slightest value. I have therefore thought it undesirable to print all at length, and have given merely the gist or an extract of such chapters. They will be found in English, in H. Murray's and Wright's editions, and in the original French, in the edition of the Société de Géographie, in Bartoli, and in Pothier. In Great Turkey there is a king called Kaidu, who is the Great Khan's nephew, for he was the grandson of Shagatai, the Great Khan's own brother. He hath many cities and castles, and is a great prince. He and his people are Tartars alike, and they are good soldiers, for they are constantly engaged in war. Now this King Kaidu is never at peace with his uncle, the great Khan, but ever at deadly war with him, and he hath fought great battles with the Khan's armies. The quarrel between them arose out of this, that Kaidu demanded from the great Khan the share of his father's conquest, that of right belonged to him, and, in particular, he demanded a share of the provinces of Cathay and Manzi. The great Khan replied that he was willing enough to give him a share such as he gave to his own sons, but that he must first come on summons to the council at the Khan's court and present himself as one of the Khan's liegemen. Kaidu, who did not trust his uncle very far, declined to come, but said that where he was he would hold himself ready to obey all the Khan's commands. In truth, as he had several times been in revolt, he dreaded that the Khan might take the opportunity to destroy him. So out of this quarrel between them there arose a great war, and several great battles were fought by the host of Kaidu against the host of the great Khan, his uncle. And the great Khan, from year's end to year's end, keeps an army watching all Kaidu's frontier, lest he should make forays on his dominions. He, nonetheless, will never cease his aggressions on the great Khan's territory, and maintains a bold face to his enemies. Indeed, he is so potent that he can well do so, for he can take the field with one hundred thousand horse, all stout soldiers and inured to war. He has also with him several barons of the imperial lineage, i.e. of the family of Chinggis Khan, who was the first of their lords, and conquered a great part of the world, as I have told you more particularly in a former part of this book. Now you must know that Great Turkey lies toward the northwest when you travel from Hormos. It begins on the furthest bank of the river John, and extends northward to the territory of the Great Khan. Now I shall tell you of sundry battles that the troops of Kaidu fought with the armies of the Great Khan. Chapter 2 Of Certain Battles That Were Fought By King Kaidu Against the Armies of His Uncle, the Great Khan. Now it came to pass in the year of Christ's incarnation, 1266, that this King Kaidu and another prince called Yesudar, who was his cousin, assembled a great force and made an expedition to attack two of the great Khan's barons who held lands under the great Khan, but were Kaidu's own kinsmen, for they were sons of Chagatai, who was a baptized Christian and own brother to the great Khan. One of them was called Shibai and the other Shiban. 
Kaidu, with all his host, amounting to sixty thousand horse, engaged the Khan's two barons, those cousins of his, who also had a great force amounting to more than sixty thousand horsemen, and there was a great battle. In the end the barons were beaten, and Kaidu and his people won the day. Great numbers were slain on both sides, but the two brother barons escaped, thanks to their good horses. So King Kaidu returned home, swelling the more with pride and arrogance, and for the next two years he remained at peace, and made no further war against the Khan. However, at the end of those two years King Kaidu assembled an army composed of a vast force of horsemen. He knew that at Karakoron was the great Khan's son Nomogan, and with him George the grandson of Prester John. These two princes had also a great force of cavalry, and when King Kaidu was ready, he set forth and crossed the frontier. After marching rapidly without any adventure, he got near Karakoron, where the Khan's son and the younger Prester John were awaiting him with their great army, for they were well aware of Kaidu's advance in force. They made them ready for battle like valiant men, and all undismayed, seeing that they had more than sixty thousand well-appointed horsemen. And when they heard Kaidu was so near that they went forth valiantly to meet him. When they got within some ten miles of him, they pitched their tents and got ready for battle, and the enemy, who were about to equal in numbers, did the same, each side forming in six columns of ten thousand men with good captains. Both sides were well equipped with swords and maces and shields, with bows and arrows and other arms after their fashion. You must know that the practice of the Tartars going to battle is to take each a bow and sixty arrows. Of these, thirty are light with small sharp points for long shots and following up an enemy, whilst the other thirty are heavy with large broad heads which they shoot at close quarters and with which they inflict great gashes on face and arms and cut the enemy's bowstrings and commit great havoc. This everyone is ordered to attend to, and when they have shot away their arrows, they take to their swords and maces and lances, which also they ply stoutly. So when both sides were ready for action, for the Nakaras began to sound loudly, one on either side. For tis their custom never to join battle till the great Nakara is beaten, and when the Nakaras sounded, then the battle began in fierce and deadly style, and furiously the one host dashed to meet the other. So many fell on either side, that in an evil hour for both it was begun. The earth was thickly strewn with the wounded and the slain, men and horses, whilst the uproar and din of battle was so loud you would not have heard God's thunder. Truly King Kaidu himself did many a deed of prowess that strengthened the hearts of his people. Nor less on the other side did the great Khan's son and Prester John's grandson, for well they proved their valor in the medley, and did astonishing feats of arms, leading their troops with right good judgment. And what shall I tell you? The battle lasted so long that it was one of the hardest the Tartars ever fought. Either side strove hard to bring the matter to a point and rout the enemy, but to no avail. And so the battle went on till Vesper tied, and without victory on either side. Many a man fell there, many a child was made an orphan there, many a lady widowed, and many another woman plunged in grief and tears for the rest of her days, I mean the mothers and the arraigns of those who fell. So when they had fought till the sun was low, they left off, and retired each side to its tents. Those who were unhurt were so dead tired that they were like to drop, and the wounded, who were many on both sides, were moaning in their various degrees of pain, but all were more fit for rest than fighting, so gladly they took their repose that night. And when morning approached, King Kaidu, who had news from his scouts that the great Khan was sending a great army to reinforce his son, judged that it was time to be off, so he called his host to saddle and mounted his horse at dawn, 
and away they set on their return to their own country. And when the great Khan's son and the grandson of Prester John saw that King Kaidu had retired with all his host, they let him go unpursued, for they were themselves sorely fatigued and needed rest. So King Kaidu and his host rode and rode, till they came to their own realm of great Turkey and to Samarkand, and there they abode a long while without again making war. Chapter 3 What the Great Khan Said to the Mischief Done by Kaidu His Nephew That were Kaidu not of his own imperial blood, he would make an utter end of him, etc. Chapter 4 Of the Exploits of King Kaidu's Valiant Daughter now you must know that King Kaidu had a daughter, whose name was Ayaruk, which in the Tartar is as much as to say the Bright Moon. This damsel was very beautiful, but also so strong and brave that in all her father's realm there was no man who could outdo her in feats of strength. In all trials she showed greater strength than any man of them. Her father often desired to give her in marriage, but she would none of it. She vowed she would never marry till she found a man who could vanquish her in every trial. Him she would wed and none else. And when her father saw how resolute she was, he gave a formal consent in their fashion that she should marry whom she list, and when she list. The lady was so tall and muscular, so stout and shapely withal, that she was almost like a giantess. She had distributed her challenges over all the kingdoms, declaring that whosoever should come to try a fall with her, it should be on these conditions, viz. that if she vanquished him, she should win from him one hundred horses, and if he vanquished her, he should win her to wife. Hence many a noble youth had come to try his strength against her, but she beat them all, and in this way she had won more than ten thousand horses. Now it came to pass in the year of Christ, 1280, that there presented himself a noble young gallant, the son of a rich and puissant king, a man of prowess and valiance and great strength of body, who had heard word of the damsel's challenge, and came to match himself against her in the hope of vanquishing her and winning her to wife that he greatly desired, for the young lady was passing fair. He too was young and handsome, fearless and strong in every way, insomuch that not a man in all his father's realm could vie with him. So he came full confidently, and brought with him one thousand horses to be forfeited if she should vanquish him. Thus she might gain one thousand horses at a single stroke. But the young gallant had such confidence in his own strength that he counted securely to win her. Now ye must know that King Kaidu and the queen his wife, the mother of the stout damsel, did privily beseech their daughter to let herself be vanquished, for they greatly desired this prince for their daughter, seeing what a noble youth he was, and the son of a great king. But the damsel answered that never would she let herself be vanquished if she could help it. If, indeed, he should get the better of her, then she would gladly be his wife, according to the wager, but not otherwise. So a day was named for a great gathering at the palace of King Kaidu, and the king and queen were there. And when all the company were assembled, for great numbers flocked to see the match, the damsel first came forth in a straight jerkin of samet, and then came forth the young bachelor in a jerkin of sendal, and a winsome sight they were to see. When both had taken post in the middle of the hall, they grappled each other by the arms and wrestled this way and that, but for a long time neither could get the better of the other. At last, however, it so befell that the damsel threw him right valiantly on the palace pavement, and when he found himself thus thrown, and her standing over him, great indeed was his shame and discomfiture. He gat him up straight away, without more ado departed with all his company, and returned to his father full of shame and vexation, that he who had never yet found a man could stand before him should have been thus worsted by a girl, and his one thousand horses he left behind him. 
As to King Kaidu and his wife, they were greatly annoyed, as I can tell you, for if they had had their will, this youth should have won their daughter. And ye must know that after this her father never went on a campaign, but she went with him. And gladly he took her, for not a knight in all his train played such feats of arms as she did. Sometimes she would quit her father's side and make a dash at the host of the enemy, and seize some man thereout as deftly as a hawk pounces on a bird, and carry him to her father, and this she did many a time. Now I will leave this story, and tell you of a great battle that Kaidu fought with Argon, the son of Abaga, lord of the Tartars of the Levant. Chapter 5 How Abaga Sent His Son Argon in Command Against King Kaidu Abaga, the lord of the Levant, had many districts and provinces bordering on King Kaidu's territories. These lay in the direction of the Arbre Sol, which the Book of Alexander calls the Arbre Sec, about which I have told you before. And Abaga, to watch against forays by Kaidu's people, sent his son Argon with a great force of horsemen to keep the marches between the Arbre Sec and the River John. So there tarried Argon with all his host. Now it came to pass that King Kaidu assembled a great army and made capture thereof a brother of his called Barak, a brave and prudent man, and sent this host under his brother to fight with Argon. Barak and his army crossed the John or Oxus and are totally routed by Argon, to whose history the traveller now turns. Chapter 6 How Argon, after the battle, heard that his father was dead, and went to assume the sovereignty, as was his right. After Argon had gained this battle over Kaidu's brother Barak and his host, no long time passed before he had news that his father Abaga was dead, whereat he was sorely grieved. He made ready his army and set out for his father's court to assume the sovereignty, as was his right, but he had a march of forty days to reach it. Now it befell that an uncle of Argon's, whose name was Akomat Soldan, for he had become a Saracen, when he heard of the death of his brother Abaga, whilst his nephew Argon was so far away, thought there was a good chance for him to seize the government. So he raised a great force, and went straight to the court of his late brother Abaga, and seized the sovereignty, and proclaimed himself king, and also got possession of the treasure, which was of vast amount. All this, like a crafty knave, he divided among the barons and the troops to secure their hearts and favor to his cause. These barons and soldiers, accordingly, when they saw what large spoil they had got from him, were all ready to say he was the best of kings, and were full of love for him, and declared they would have no lord but him. But he did one evil thing that was greatly reprobated by all, for he took all the wives of his brother Abaga and kept them for himself. Soon after he had seized the government, word came to him how Argon his nephew was advancing with all his host. Then he tarried not, but straightway summoned his barons and all his people, and in a week had fitted out a great army of horse to go meet Argon. And he went forth light of heart, as being confident of victory, showing no dismay, and saying on all occasions that he desired not so much as to take Argon and put him to a cruel death. Chapter 7 How Akomat Soldan set out with his host against his nephew, who was coming to claim the throne that belonged to him relates how Akomat marches with sixty thousand horse, and on hearing of the approach of Argon summons his chiefs together and addresses them. Chapter 8 How Argon took counsel with his followers about attacking his uncle Akomat Soldan. Argon, uneasy at hearing of Akomat's approach, calls together his barons and counselors and addresses them. Chapter 9 
how the barons of Argon answered his address. An old baron, as the spokesman of the rest, expresses their zeal and advises immediate advance. On coming within ten miles of Akamat, Argon encamps and sends two envoys to his uncle. Chapter 10. The Message Sent by Argon to Akamat A Remonstrance and Summons to Surrender the Throne Chapter 11. How Akamat Replied to Argon's Message And when Akamat Soldan had heard the message of Argon, his nephew, he thus replied, Sirs and envoys, quoth he, My nephew's words are vain, for the land is mine, not his, and I help to conquer it as much as his father did. So go and tell my nephew that if he and I will make him a great prince and give him ample lands, and he shall be as my son and the greatest lord in the land after myself. But if he will not, let him be assured that I will do my best to bring him to his death. That is my answer to my nephew, and naught else of concession or covenant shall you ever have from me. With that Akamat ceased, and said no more. And when the envoys had heard the Soldan's words, they asked again, Is there no hope that we shall find you in different mind? Never, quoth he, never whilst I live shall ye find my mind changed. Argon's wrath at the reply, Both sides prepare for battle. Chapter 12 of the battle between Argon and Akomat, and the captivity of Argon. There is a prolix description of a battle almost identical with those already given in chapter 2 of this book, and previously it ends with the rout of Argon's army, and proceeds. And in the pursuit Argon was taken. As soon as this happened, they gave up the chase, and returned to their camp full of joy and exultation. Akomat first caused his nephew to be shackled and well guarded, and then being a man of great lechery, said to himself that he would go and enjoy himself among the fair women of his court. He left a great melech in command of his host, enjoining him to guard Argon like his own life, and to follow to the court by short marches to spare the troops. And so Akomat departed with a great following, and on his way to the royal residence. Thus then Akomat had left his host in command of that melech whom I mentioned, whilst Argon remained in irons and in such bitterness of heart that he desired to die. End of section 18. Recording by Will Staunton in Toronto, Canada.